I'll give you just a little update while we're getting settled here. James Coates in Edmonton, Alberta, in Canada. He remains, uh, he's still, still imprisoned right now in jail, uh, waiting trial. Um, just a couple of things to put this in perspective. He has been said to be a danger to the health and safety of Albertans because of um, the fact that he wouldn't shut down his church. A little perspective. In Alberta, there are 4.5 million people. There are less than 50 in ICU for coronavirus. That's not health and safety. That is persecution. Good news is churches all over Alberta are opening today. Not because of the government. Yeah, yeah let's, let's give it to them. Absolutely. Because they're not going to stand alone. And now the true church is going to be revealed. As a church, you stay shut down at your peril to be given a condemnation by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're thankful for that, and we pray that that continues. And we said this last week, um, the fool this once, it won't happen again. Not here. Absolutely not. Well, with that, turn with me to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. And while you're finding that, let's, let's go to the cross for a moment. Let's think on the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was hated. He was mocked. He was seen as inconsequential, as irrelevant by the leaders of the very nation that he loved. He was rejected by the people that he himself had created. When he was arrested, he was treated as a criminal all because of the jealousy in the hearts of the so-called spiritual leaders of Israel. He was humiliated in six different trials. He was beaten, whipped, bloodied, punched in the face. He had his beard ripped out of his face. He had a crown of thorns shoved upon his head, deeply cutting into his scalp. He had mock king's clothing placed upon his bloodied and whipped back and when the blood on his back had coagulated and and stuck to these garments then they ripped them off opening those wounds again he carried the crossbeam of his cross as far as he could toward Golgotha having not slept at all the night before the place of execution outside the walls of Jerusalem were before him and yet in his humanity he couldn't make it he collapsed because of dehydration and fatigue and blood loss. Simon was brought up to carry the cross, Simon of Cyrene. And when Jesus arrived at Golgotha, the place of the skull, he was laid down upon the the rough, splintered, vertical portion of the cross. And then huge iron nails driven into his wrists and to his feet The cross was lifted up and immediately Jesus began the struggle that all victims of crucifixion face. And that is the fight just to breathe. Now the weight of his own body would soon dislocate his wrists, dislocate his shoulders, making his arms seem grotesquely long. And he would languish on the cross in excruciating pain for six hours. 
And during the last three hours, darkness would come across the land as Jesus faced all the fury, all the wrath, all the anger of God, which was because of you, because of your sin, because of your iniquity, because you were born a sinner, and because you've lived out every single day since the time you were able to make a choice, you've lived out sin. And he was on that cross because you've murdered with hatred in your heart. You've lied and cheated and stolen. You've arrogantly thought that you could please God with your so-called self-righteousness. You've coveted that which is not yours. You have lusted and dreamt and longed to use God's gift of marital sexuality for your own selfish, disgusting enjoyment. You've obeyed nothing but your own desires and you've disobeyed your parents from the time you were small. You disobeyed them in your actions. You disobeyed them in your heart. You've disobeyed all sorts of authority. You've desired greed. You've desired things. You've desired to have. You've desired and longed for things that you wish would make you happy. Because you could not and you would not control your tongue, Jesus had to go to the cross. Because the thoughts of your mind were continually selfish, Jesus had to go to the cross. Because you were a slave to sin, rightly condemned as having fallen short of the glory of God. And while you were doing all of this, in fact, before you did any of it, Jesus went to the cross for you. He died to face the eternal wrath of God in your place so that you might trade sin for righteousness, that you might trade condemnation for acceptance, that you might trade being a child of the devil for being a child of God, that you might trade darkness for light, that you might trade being an enemy of God for being a friend of God, that you might trade being destined for judgment to being destined for glory, that you might trade fear of death for fearlessness in death, and that you might trade the promise of eternal hell for the promise of eternal heaven. And like the great hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I what? Owe. What do you owe? You owe gratitude. You owe worship. You owe your life. And now like the waters of baptism symbolize, you've been crucified with Christ and you no longer live but Christ lives in you, and because of this, Jesus has all rights over you. He's purchased you at the cost of his own life, of his own blood. He has the right to define what it means to be his. Mark eight thirty four. you take up your cross and follow him no matter the cost. He has the right to give you your life's purpose without any apology, fully expecting your answer to be, yes, Lord. Like Jesus told Paul after knocking him down and blinding him and saving him in Acts 9, 6, Jesus said, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. He has the right to command as he does in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And he has the right to set the parameters of your life as to what a truly converted believer in Christ is to be. And he sets these parameters. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my what? Commandments. So the question I have for you today is, do you truly believe this? Do you truly believe that the one who has been purchased by the very life and death of Christ himself, the one who has lowered himself to be humiliated and degraded and tortured on the cross so that you could become a citizen of heaven, 
Do you truly believe that Christ has the right to define what it means to be his, to give you your life's purpose without apology, to command that your life be a living sacrifice to him, to set the parameter of your life as if you love me, you will keep my commandments. My question for you this morning is, do you believe this? Do you believe that Christ as your savior and your sovereign and your king as having purchased all rights to you and all rights to your life, that then your right response is to obey. Do you believe that Christ and Christ alone now has the rights to issue commands and orders and directives and imperatives to you? Do you believe that the only right response of the Christian is to obey the Lord in love and gratitude and thankfulness? Do you believe this? I'm asking the question. then 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15 will not be a problem. We'll start in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The only person that this text is a problem for is the one who thinks that obeying Christ is 70% or 80% or 90%. But if, as all of you have affirmed, that having come to the cross and having been given eternal life, he has every right to issue directives and commands and orders, and we say, yes, Lord. The very first person Satan ever went after, the very first human being that the deceiver attempted to distract from the decree and the word of God was our common mother, Eve. We don't know the precise reason that Satan went after Eve to tempt her to sin, but we do know the consequences. They were disastrous for the human race, particularly since her husband made no effort to defend what was right. And Satan has never stopped coming after women. Overtly and obviously, he has come after women through brutal abuse by men. This has been one of the greatest failings of humanity for millennia, the the horrible mistreatment of the pinnacle of God's creation of woman. But covertly, under the radar, Satan has come after women spiritually. The deception of women is a multi-billion dollar every year business. It's an industry First, Satan creates insatiable desires for things which are absolutely unnecessary and then provides the means for women to fulfill those desires in an ever-widening circle of greed and drama and selfishness and absolute relationship disasters. And since the days of the Apostle Paul, the world's allures and the world's distractions and cultural expectations for women have been trying to break down the door of the church. And often very successfully. 
I literally thought this was a joke when it happened. I thought it was one of those Babylon Bee type of things that was put online just to make us laugh. And then I found out it was true when we saw the, the other confusion regarding men and women when recently a United Methodist pastor opened the 117th Congress with a prayer to a vague God and ended the prayer with amen and a woman. I thought it was a joke. He thought he was making some sort of statement about gender roles. To combat this deception, to fight this confusion, we must always go to the truth. And so we come to one of the most debated passages in all the New Testament. It's only debated by people who don't want to completely obey Christ. A lot of ink and a little bit of blood has been spilled over these verses here. But I trust that as all of you desire to submit to Christ, as those completely devoted to following him, that you'll receive this with joy. It's that what is unclear, perhaps, in your mind will become clear over these coming weeks. Now, in my uh, counseling experience and, and my reading, my observation, we might be able to put together kind of a broad portrait of what we might call the 21st century shallow church-attending woman. This isn't everyone, but it's a, it's a broad picture. She may be saved, she may be not. I'm talking about the one that you can't tell. Because she lives so much like the world that her true allegiance is very difficult to find. This is what she would be like. She tends to major on relationships and minor on truth. She tends to have an insatiable desire for more of this or more of that. She tends to be very focused on her own happiness, that that is the goal of her life, is to be happy. She may believe in submission to her husband in theory, but not really living it out in reality. In fact, she may scoff about it with her friends. She may go to a women's Bible study and make fun of her husband behind his back. She's beset by gossip and what she calls sharing. And the idea of simply taking some knowledge to your grave is out of the question. There's an overwhelming curiosity about the lives of others, a bloodlust for information, Googling everyone, looking everybody up, trying to get information for the, that momentary high that it creates. There's a yearning to somehow reflect and exemplify feminist ideals, yet still trying to somehow fit those ideals into a semi-biblical understanding of the role of the women in the, whole, in the home and in the, in the church, and not understanding how to do that, but trying to make them fit. She may be easily angered, easily upset, easily offended, particularly when the idols of her life are poked. She may use her personal emotions as the gauge of what is right and wrong. Not only does she often operate at the whim of emotion, but she exerts her right to do so, and everybody else better watch out. She's happy to learn in the church as long as nothing contradicts what she already believes. Ideals such as self-control and dignity and quietness of heart are replaced by obsession with meeting personal needs, using manipulation and pushiness to get her way, trying to get attention rather than being gracious and classy and dignified. And much or all of this will remain under the surface, maybe for a lifetime, as long as relationships don't get too real, as long as preaching stays fluffy and complimentary, and as long as certain sensitive issues are dealt with in the church in a way to not make anyone mad. Now, if you think I'm being hard on the women of the church, I am not, because it's not their fault. I place the blame for this 
exclusively at the feet of the shepherds of the church who will not use the pulpit to teach the word of God. It's like going to a restaurant where the chef won't put anything on the plate. Where the pastors won't insist on the sanctification of their members, won't stand up to rebellious immaturity in the church. These are the unfaithful shepherds who are more concerned that the women of the church like them than they are concerned that they love Christ. I'm glad if you like me, I'd rather you love Christ. This is a leadership problem, and the the women of the church have been victimized as a result. They've suffered. They've often remained stuck in immaturity in the same way that the men of the church are stuck in immaturity because they aren't being taught. They're not being challenged. But this doesn't relieve all of us of the responsibility of our growing in the knowledge of Christ. And the warning I would have is that the older you are in the Lord, the more urgent this becomes because you can get spiritually stuck in immaturity and childishness simply because certain ways of dealing with the world become habits rather than well-thought-out biblical strategies. And this can crystallize. It can become an almost unbreakable habit because softness and pliability and teachability has now been replaced by bad habits and and coasting on sermons and spiritual growth that you experienced a decade ago. But the Apostle Paul gives the antidote to this sort of rudderless, aimless, directionless version of Christian womanhood here in 1 Timothy 2, 9-15. This is not an easy passage. From a human standpoint, clearly written by a man. Clearly we understand this. It's not fluffy. It's not a feel-good passage. There's no cute story at the beginning. There's nothing to soften this at all. But if we dig into it, what you're going to find is that it holds the keys to a mature and contented and joyful and satisfied womanhood as a believer in Christ. And so today we're going to begin a short series I'm calling simply The Godly Women of the Church And what I'd like to do today is just answer the question, what's a woman to do? What's a woman to do? And we'll just kind of look at at this passage as a whole this morning. Our our passage here has a purpose and has a context. The purpose is to direct the functioning of the church. And the context is an official worship gathering of the local church. Now, in the early years of the church, believers often met in homes, but they would generally be large homes, large groups, and even larger groups than that would meet in the local synagogue or even the temple in Jerusalem. The larger context of the entire book of 1 Timothy, which Paul is now now giving instruction concerning the order of the church, this now tells us how the women of the church are to be in order, Overall, how the church is to be as the bride of Christ. But for each of these principles that we'll see concerning the conduct of a Christian woman, the the underlying principles are clearly lifestyle ways of walking with the Lord. This week become especially apparent in verse 15. Now, I specifically named this series the godly women of the church because our focus all throughout 1 Timothy this year will be the church. But I wanted to highlight the church in particular in terms of the priorities and conduct of the women for two major reasons. First of all, this year at Grace Bible Church is very much the year of the church, the pillar and foundation of the truth. What does that mean? It means that we're not only to accurately represent the truths of God, but we're to affirm our belief in those truths by living them. 
That's the difference between what some have called head churches and churches that are actually sanctifying their members. Now, the second reason we want to highlight the priorities and conduct of the women in terms of the church is one of the, one of the great, tremendous indicators of a healthy church is when you have a culture of men and women understanding and living their respective roles. That's a healthy church. So much has been lost to this in evangelicalism as if gender roles are somehow separate from our faith. In fact, we're going to see in a later message that gender roles are woven into our faith because they're rooted in God's created order. You can't say, well, I'm a Christian, but I believe something different about gender roles. No, you believe the Bible or you don't. Now, this passage is, I will admit, shocking to the spiritually malnourished 21st century woman. It certainly has on more than one occasion exposed false believers in the church because some will draw the line here in their obedience to Christ, exposing them as unregenerate because you can't be a true believer in Christ and say, I commit to 75% of the word of God. You can't do that. Now, I would like to give a word of caution to all the husbands here. Before you... Try not to wipe that smile off your face. Before you are doing this in glee, you don't need to ask questions of your wives like, did you catch that? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? You don't need to bump her with your elbow just a little bit. You don't need to present her with, here's a pen with fresh ink. You need to go ahead and... (laughs) Shall I review the points for you? I, I took notes, page 19. You don't have to do that. Preaching is the work of the Spirit through His Word, and the Spirit of God does not need your help. Just pray for the women of our church, which is pretty much what I'm going to be saying to the women of our church to be praying for you when we get to 1 Timothy 3, (laughs) which is all about the men. And trust me, God has much to say to the men. In this case, we'll say ladies first. I want to ease into this water. I know we may expect this, especially if you're new to the faith, if you're new to Grace Bible Church, you may expect this water to be icy and cold and uncomfortable. But as we wade in, I think you're going to find it warm and inviting and delightful. Why is that? Because anytime you know the will of God and walk in it, that is warm and inviting and delightful. For the rest of our time together this morning, I just want to ease into this passage. I want to try to answer the question, what's a woman to do? Specifically, what's a woman to do with this passage? Because it is so antithetical to everything we're taught in our culture. I'm going to give you five answers to this question. What's a woman to do? Here's the first answer. Honor the authority and infallibility of Scripture. Honor the authority and infallibility of Scripture. And I chose those two words on purpose. Let's just define them quickly. The authority of Scripture says that Scripture and Scripture alone has spiritual authority over your life. You don't compare it to anything else. You don't say, the culture says this, but the Bible says this. I think in this case I'll go with the culture, but in this case I'll go with the Bible because it's easier. No, Scripture and Scripture alone has authority. The infallibility of Scripture, it's easy to remember. You could say it this way. It is the unfailability of of scripture it will never fail and scripture will never cause you to fail when i was doing my doctoral project one of the passages i had to study was first peter three and i read supposedly christian commentators saying that peter was writing things that would cause abuse of women 
What is that saying? The word of God causes the abuse of women? I, I can't even hardly say that out loud. No, the Bible is infallible. It will never cause you to fail, ever. And how quick we are to compare the scriptures with our culture. We use the culture as the tape measure. We use it as the gauge for scripture almost before we can even think critically. And why is that? Our, our emotions get engaged before we ever look at the Bible, particularly on issues that are, are tender for us. Why is it that we use culture as the gauge? Well, it's very simple. We know the culture better than we know the Bible. And we tend to defend what we know. But who are we to say that scripture may have a challenger? When somebody says, well, this researcher says about women, my answer is, I don't even acknowledge the fact that that has any authority whatsoever. It is like the old Charlie Brown cartoons, just wah, 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 wah. That's all it is. It's just noise. Do we say that the created things, that's us, may judge the words of the creator? Do we say that my observation of the culture is now a tool with which to interpret the Bible? Some, especially those who have no trouble questioning the authority of Scripture, just flat out say that Paul was wrong in this particular instance. Some even call him domineering or abusive. Or that since women are so much more educated and enlightened now that this passage no longer has any application in modern times, so we have to let it go. Now there's a little trick that for about a century now scholars have been using to try to discount and devalue this passage, and that is the assertion that the city of Ephesus, and that's where Timothy is Paul's representative as his, as his representative to the church gathering there, that the city of Ephesus was a unique society in the Greco-Roman world. It was completely different than any place else. Therefore, this passage only applies to them. That these commands are specific only to the Ephesian church only because Ephesus was different. It was unique. And trust me, I'm telling you this because you're going to read this everywhere if you look at anything on 1 Timothy 2. And so I want to take a moment and just, just really put that to rest. I want to highlight three ways that people have tried to devalue this text as being applicable and saying, ah, this is just for the Ephesian women 2,000 years ago. The first way that they've tried to devalue, we'll call it just simply rewriting history. Rewriting history. They would say, well, Ephesus was a hotbed of radical feminism, so these commands are necessary to counteract that. Now, it is true that feminism of some sort existed in the ancient world, but to say that this was the prevailing culture among the women in Ephesus, such that Paul issued this blanket proclamation to fight against this, that's just not historically accurate. First of all, Ephesus was a large city, but like large cities today, and even more so back then, the population primarily consisted of those living in the farming villages just outside the city. And as much as 80% of the total population was rural. Are you talking to feminists then? No, you're talking to wives and daughters living on farms. Second, those women in the city, as many as a third of them were slaves. They didn't have legal rights. They didn't have any social position. They... they the idea of feminism was the last thing on their minds. They were just trying to get through the day. And another third of them were slaves who had been freed. And because their masters were so kind and generous, they stayed. So what do you have then? Any feminism and any women's rights movements which existed, and they did, but they existed for a very, very small fraction of the women in Ephesus. Very few of them. 
And so they're rewriting history by saying this is all about counteracting feminism. The second way this text is devalued, we'll call this one the myth of uneducated women. The myth of uneducated women. Now here's irony for you. They'll say the prohibition against women teaching men is because there were a lot of uneducated women in Ephesus. It's true that women in the ancient world were less educated than men, but this is mostly portrayed somehow as women being completely illiterate or barely able to read, and that's just not not the case especially in the larger cities. Women didn't often appear as public speakers, as doctors, lawyers, or philosophers. It doesn't mean they were completely uneducated. It just means that most of them never went to what we would call graduate school. In fact, almost nobody went to what we would call graduate school. Pretty much everyone got what we would call about a sixth grade education, and that was enough for them. But the education of women did happen It just mostly happened privately. As a matter of fact, women in Ephesus and women in other large cities in the Greco-Roman world were among the best educated people in the world. You want to know why? Because especially in the upper class homes, daughters were educated extensively because they were going to be the ones running this massive household someday. They had private tutors. They were learning languages. They were learning mathematics. They were learning science. They were learning everything needed to know to run what, in essence, was a small company. The third way that some devalue this text, we'll call this one a false portrayal of home life. A false portrayal of home life. They would say, well, the women in Ephesus felt oppressed and confined in their homes, which led to the problem of attitudes of feminine superiority. Does that sound familiar? All that is, is the terrible Bible study method of reading contemporary discussions backwards into the text. Now, some of the women that Paul is addressing, we're going to see, they were extremely wealthy. They would have been household managers over extensive homes or estates with servants, and even perhaps helping her husband with the family business. Why would a woman want to try to compete with men when they already had extensive authority? One scholar who's done extensive work on correcting these misconstrued historical descriptions of Ephesus, he wrote this. They, meaning the women, may not have held public office or taught, not because it was forbidden by domineering men, but because they didn't care to do so. They had their own spheres of influence. And so, instead of desperately trying to explain away God's will with radically altered views of history, how about we simply do what Scripture says? And remember 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I think that's easier. I think that's more consistent. There's a second answer to the question, what's a woman to do? This is a little bit of a longer answer. I couldn't say it in short form, so here it is. Remember that spiritual equality and different roles coexist perfectly. Remember that spiritual equality and different roles coexist perfectly. The theological foundation for God's design of manhood and womanhood is not a social construct. It's not the invention of humanity. It's rooted in the very account of creation itself. Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Male and female, he created them. 
By the way, just so we know, and I, I won't get really graphic here, but just so you know, the Hebrew words for male and female are descriptive of anatomy. It's to say, this is a man, and we all know it. This is a woman, and we all know it. It's a fundamental difference. And yet, look at the undeniable intertwining of male and female as the expression of the image of God. That, that mankind, represented by male and female, is made in the very reflection to reflect and be a mirror of the nature of God himself. And so what we have is the true equality of the sexes in terms of value and as the pinnacle of God's creation. And simultaneously, we have the difference between the two in terms of function. Genesis 2, beginning of verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. There's not a helper for him. There's not a helper fit for him. She is to be the helper, the assistant, and specifically fit for him. It's a Hebrew word that means mirror image. The same yet different. The man and woman were equal in essence, equal in nobility, equal as the pinnacle of all that God had made, and yet different in function. By the way, one of the immediate knee-jerk reactions to reading this passage is to, um, and the different positions on it, is to often define a, an interpretation of this passage in terms of position. That uh, the question is asked, can a woman be a missionary? Can a woman be a children's director in the church? Can she be a youth pastor, a worship leader, a, a teacher of a small group that has both men and women? Can she be a professor in a Bible college or a seminary, an associate pastor, or even a senior pastor? And those questions can all be answered with some wisdom, and we'll address those as we go in this series. That's not what this text is about. It's not talking about positions women hold in the church. It's addressing what a woman is to do. It gives us the will of God for godly women. And it takes care of all of those answers pretty much automatically. Now, the assumption in this passage that Paul makes is that a woman of God desires to pursue a, a useful and a vital role in the kingdom of Christ. And this passage tells her how to do that. It tells you how to do that. And by the way, this is not about giftedness. It's not about giftedness. A woman may, in fact, be, for example, a very, very gifted teacher. That doesn't mean she dishonors God by using that gift in a way that's contrary to his design. The functions of men and women are different by design in the home, different by design in the church. Those are the two realms in which God most wants us to concern ourselves. And just because those roles are different doesn't mean one is above another. I read this morning from John chapter 5 for a specific reason. Jesus said that he only does what his father says. Jesus submitted to his father to go to the cross. He said that all that the father commands him, he does. Do we question the deity of Christ because of that? Do we say, well, since Jesus was obeying his father, he must not be fully God? No, of course not. Do we question Hebrews 1, which says Jesus is the exact imprint of God, that he's the radiance of God himself? No, we don't question that. What we see in Christ is a perfect example of functioning in subordination to his father and yet equal to the father in every single way. 
Let me give you a third answer to the question, what, what's a woman to do? We're going to learn a new word for some of you. Beware of a culture-driven hermeneutic. Hermeneutic. Somebody has often said, Herman who? A hermeneutic just means your Bible study method. Beware of a culture-driven hermeneutic. Commentators in the recent history of the interpretation of this text have often been grievously guilty of changing their Bible study method, changing their hermeneutic to accommodate the culture, to accommodate that which is politically correct. In fact, next week, I'm going to give you an example of a, of a brilliant scholar that I love reading him, but in this text, he punts everything that he has taught in other sources about hermeneutics. You can't use women's issues as a Bible study method. You can't use modern or even historical commentary on what's happening in the culture as a method. Why? Because it's not connected to the text. So what do you do? Well, you follow some basic well-worn guidelines to make certain Scripture speaks for itself. And you know these. You interpret contextually. What's the context of the section? What's the context of the book? The author, the recipients, the occasion for the writing. You interpret theologically. It is a great danger to separate theology from the Bible. No, theology is embedded in Scripture. You interpret with a view to application. Yes, there are immediate cultural factors, for example, to the city of Ephesus, which need to be understood in terms of principles. But principles are always the same, regardless of the time. I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, I preached on an obscure text in Exodus chapter 20. This text commands that anyone who made an altar of stone couldn't make it with steps. Now, why couldn't you make it with steps? Because, this is the reason given in Scripture, if you forgot to wear your underwear, it'd be really embarrassing. That's the basic reason. No one should see your nakedness under your robe. Now, what is this? I've never made a stone altar. And if I did... Definitely wearing my undergarments. But how does this apply to me? Here is the lesson to Israel. The lesson was that there's to be a modesty in the presence of God when you worship him for the sake of holiness and sanctity. Does that sound familiar? 1 Timothy 2.9 Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty. Where? In the gathered body of Christ. Same principle. But if you relegate any passage of Scripture to being completely inapplicable, then why has God included it in the first place? You interpret with a historical grammatical literalness that words matter, sentence structure matters. History helps us. It doesn't negate the relevance for today, but it helps us understand the relevance for today. And then you interpret with other Scriptures. Now, let me ask you a question. And this is what I, can't, I haven't found anybody to answer this. If Ephesus is a completely unique situation, that this is the exception to the rule, wouldn't you find other scriptures about the role of women contradicting this one? But you don't. They're all consistent. You can't just discard certain verses because they don't fit your culture or because you look out on your congregation as a pastor and realize 85% of your congregation are women, a couple of them are rich, and they're giving a lot, and my salary, my, my mortgage is high, and, and I better be careful with this passage. You can't do that. You just teach the word. Speaking of which, not only are you to beware, beware of a culture-driven hermeneutic, instead, fourth answer to the question, what's a woman to do? <clears throat> 
Feel the freedom of ignoring cultural norms. Feel the freedom of ignoring cultural norms. By definition, God's people are different and set apart from worldly philosophies and systems. Israel was given dietary laws and laws for all of life that differed from their neighbors to demonstrate that they were set apart by God. In 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Peter calls us sojourners, exiles. It means we're travelers. And as such, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. John reminds us in 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Jesus said in John 15, 19, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Jesus is the one we look to, not the approval of our culture. Philippians 3.20 tells us our citizenship is where? In heaven. And from it we await a savior. I truly feel sorry for the unbelievers of our culture. And I feel sorry for the unbelievers who have infiltrated the ranks of the church. Because they are in a lifetime desperate quest for approval from one another. That's what they live for. Who can be the most woke Who can appear the most compassionate, which is code word for steal your money to give it to somebody else? Who can get on the latest bandwagon of popular opinion the fastest? Who can be the most supportive of murdering babies in the womb? This clawing for approval, this is like a drug. It's a yearning which drives and motivates the wicked. I read recently of a young lady who said that her life's purpose had been fulfilled because she met Nancy Pelosi. Yearning for that approval from somebody who is as wicked as the pit of hell itself. In terms of womanhood, our culture hates women. You know what I know how I know? Because everything in our culture says to do the opposite of what would bless you as a Christian woman. In terms of womanhood, our culture continues to denigrate the Bible's view of womanhood and always will because womanhood is integral to God's created order. You can't try to somehow harmonize modern feminist thought with Scripture. It can't be done. The world will never provide you satisfaction. The most successful career, the most money earned, the most prestigious uh, awards given, the most graduate degrees achieved, none of that None of that will provide satisfaction. In fact, the pursuit of those things as as idols of the heart only lead to what can only be characterized as a worthless life. And this is possible. It is possible to be a Christian and live a worthless life. 1 Corinthians 3 says that some will be saved as only through a fire. How sad will it be to appear before God, yes, your sin's forgiven, but having utterly wasted the years you had on this earth. Instead of getting into that river of fighting piranha and crocodiles, all clawing and biting for recognition and achievement, which will be forgotten the moment you die, look to the greatest satisfaction. Look to the the greatest reward you can possibly imagine. How about this one? Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but the woman that fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works 
praise her in the gates. What does it mean? This is Proverbs 31, the very end, that let her works praise her in the gates. Who is in the gates? The elders of the village, the elders of the town are at the gates. And this is a husband saying, I got to tell you something. I have the greatest wife on planet Earth. The reward we long to hear hear from Christ is, well done, good and faithful servant. The Lord Jesus will never say, good job, you are more woke and liberal than anybody else. By the way, women in the Bible have had some of the greatest splashes for the gospel ever. John chapter 4, Jesus led a Samaritan woman to faith in him, and she goes down in history as the greatest woman evangelist of her time. He returned, she returned to her village. She told anyone who would listen. And the result was John 4, 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Mary Magdalene was charged by the resurrected Jesus Christ to go tell his disciples that he had risen from the dead. The first person to announce the risen Lord was a woman. Maybe you've never heard of Phoebe church at Rome sure had. Romans 16, 1, Phoebe was the woman who brought Paul's letter to the Romans to them. She was very likely the first person ever to read the letter to Romans. How about Priscilla? She never took authority. She never taught in the church. And yet she is instrumental in the life of the church. She very respectfully and privately spoke to the great Bible teacher Apollos in Acts 18, who hadn't yet heard all about Christ, and she showed them what he didn't yet know. She, their husband, quote, explained to him the way of God more accurately. And Apollos goes down in history as one of the greatest preachers the church has ever known, helped by the quiet kindness of a tent maker's wife. Instead of that endless pursuit of pleasing the world that will never, ever provide satisfaction, ever, Feel the freedom of walking in the will of God. Feel the freedom of being completely different. Feel the freedom of enjoying the fruit and blessing of being all that God called you to be as a woman. That pursuit of godly loveliness and a gentle spirit and a helping life and a servant's heart. Feel the freedom of ignoring cultural norms. I don't know how long it's been since any of you have been in the home of a radical unbeliever. But then you, you, you visit that home and then you go into the home of one of our families here. Don't you just feel safer? And you just go, you know, from the world standpoint, our families are weird. We got, we got all, these, all these people that are trying to not be like the world. And from a world standpoint, you go, you do what? You read the Bible before dinner? You go to church? You do all these strange things? Your, your girls don't dress like prostitutes when they're 12? You do all these things that are so odd, and yet for us, it just feels normal. It feels normal. Ignore cultural norms. One more answer to the question, what's a woman to do? Revere God's design for the Christian home. Revere God's design for the Christian home. And before I even get into this, I I just want to share with you from my heart, I've been doing the work of the ministry for about 25 years now, and I've been around long enough to have couples come talk to me after they're done raising their kids. And I have seen the tears. I have seen the Kleenex after Kleenex after Kleenex and the sobs and the regrets of having wished that we had raised our children in the admonition and fear of the Lord. 
and you can't go back. Now, God is gracious, and you can ask your adult children to be gracious as well. But for those of you still raising your family, listen carefully. Revere God's design for the Christian home. You get one shot. One of Paul's purposes in this passage is to preserve the ideal of the Christian home. We're going to see this in verse 15. We'll dissect that in detail in a few weeks. The Christian home at its best is not designed, listen very carefully, it is not designed for a husband and wife to be doing the same things, sharing all responsibilities equally. That's called roommates. That's not marriage. There's meant to be a a complementary balancing and offsetting, helping one another and yes as men and women made in the image of god we have a joint dominion over the world but this dominion is organized by having different roles different functions and in the family both the husband and the wife are to benefit from one another to benefit from the differences first peter 3 7 says that husbands and wives are both heirs of the grace of life now i i think this is most often misinterpreted and misconstrued to mean that both are heirs of eternal life in Christ. And that sounds great. That's a wonderful interpretation from the wrong text. Because just a few verses earlier, the godly wife is exhorted to win her husband, presumably to salvation, by her quiet spirit and behavior. So it can't be that they're both heirs to eternal life. The grace of life can't be speaking of eternal life in Christ. Instead, it's something much more basic, much more earthy. The grace of life is marriage itself. The the Christian home is to be a haven from this world. It's to be a little piece of heaven on this earth. And it can only be that little piece of heaven if we will fulfill the way God would have us be. What does this design of different functions look like for the woman of the family We can't get away from God's original design of her being a helper, one who assists her husband. And how, over the last decades, women have run from this. And instead, our culture has continued feminizing the men and masculinizing the women. We've we've flip-flopped roles. Part of the purpose of this passage is to preserve the honor and the dignity and the sanctity of the Christian home. This does not mean that a woman's role is any less or somehow second is not. Paul didn't think that of the women in the church. He revered them, and he expected them to act reverently. Titus 2, beginning in verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. What a church. When the church has its experienced women, notice I didn't say older, that's Paul, not me, has the experienced women teaching the younger women, and you begin this culture now of obeying Christ. Oh, that's a church. That's a church. How precious this is in the sight of God. What's a woman to do? Honor the authority and infallibility of Scripture. Remember that spiritual equality and different roles coexist perfectly. Beware of a culture-driven hermeneutic or Bible study method. Feel the freedom of ignoring cultural norms and revere God's design for the Christian home. 
I, I really wanted to take time to pour a lot of concrete and make sure this foundation is, is solid because we're going to get into some difficult texts. I said earlier, it's not soft. It's not fluffy. It's just direct truth. And so in this short series, we're going to examine the godly women of the church in five realms. Godly adornment, godly works, godly learning, godly design, and godly influence. We started at the cross, and I want to end at the cross. What's a woman to do? A woman, like a man, is to look to Christ and to say, You gave everything to me. You paid it all. And all to you I owe. And so we obey. We live for Christ in obedience to him as an act of worship, an act of gratitude for the eternal life that he purchased at such a dear price. And I think it's safe to say that you owe Christ nothing less. Can I tell you one more thing? This this weighs on me. The unhappiest people I deal with in the church of Jesus Christ are people who will not obey God. And I see them in my office. It's, our building's little. I could throw a rock and hit my office from here. And from women, one of the biggest things I hear is depression. I know depression is a huge issue, has a lot of different causes. It's a complex issue. But you know, once we start eliminating physical issues, once we start eliminating other issues, oftentimes it comes down to I'm choosing not to obey Christ and I have some areas of unsubmission in my life. Well, of course you're depressed. Happiness, joy, and unsubmission and unfaithfulness don't go together. And conversely, I also have the joy, and this happens, I'm so glad, much, much more often. Speaking to some of you and just you gushing with your delight that you know when we run our home the way christ would have us to be and when men are doing what they're supposed to do and the women are doing what they're supposed to do and we're spanking our kids because they're little sinners and we're telling them the gospel and we are raising our family up to be that which would be pleasing to christ and we are in the church and we are in one another's lives and we love each other and husbands are loving their wives and wives are submitting to their husbands and children are honoring their parents and the family reads the bible and they pray and they sing the hymns of the faith they say And you say to me, oh, our hearts are bursting with joy. Why? Because you're walking in God's design. Or you can ignore his design and walk through life dissatisfied, wondering what happened. Let's do the former. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time we've had in your word. Just really kind of getting started here. Nothing too much before we dig into the text next week i pray lord for our families i pray for the ladies of our church we love them so much they're so dear to us lord they are they are the color and the delight and the fragrance and the and the the wonder of the church of jesus christ and we thank you for them and i pray that these coming weeks would be helpful i pray that it would lead all of them closer to christ I pray that they would find those areas, the little idols in the closet that perhaps need to be thrown out. And I pray, Lord, that they would be encouraged and that all of us would be encouraged to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable as our act of worship. And we pray these things for the glory of Christ and in his name, amen.